Welcome to the Health and Wealth Power Hour, the podcast provides you with the knowledge and insights you need to achieve physical, mental, and financial well-being. I'm your host, Arlen Pickett, a business consultant who's passionate about helping people achieve a more balanced and healthier life. Each week, we'll deep dive into topics related to health and wealth, including retirement income planning, innovative healthcare solutions, alternative funded health plans, and specific actions individuals and business owners can take to gain control of their finances, have access to affordable quality health care, and achieve peace of mind. We'll also be joined by innovative experts who will share their knowledge and insights on prevalent topics. So, whether you're looking to grow your wealth or improve your health, you've come to the right place. Get ready to be informed, inspired, and empowered. Let's get started. All right, so why does healthcare suck? I am sure we've got some folks on this call that have their own opinion of why that is. We're going to hit on a few things today, and it's a lot of this is, is kind of my opinion, but you know, it's, it's the opinion of a lot of others too. I'm going to talk about different reports that have been come out over the last few years that really have been, been very detrimental to our healthcare system because of all the things that are going on. Uh, we, we talked last month when we had the Why Does Healthcare Suck about the fact that that recent report that came out that said 70% of Americans believe that the healthcare system has failed them in some way. Well, we didn't just get to that number arbitrarily. That number is real. That's whether the system is a complete failure or not is not really up for debate because if that many Americans feel like the healthcare system sucks, then sadly it does. Now, if you're a, a clinician out there, like my buddy George, George, thanks for being with us today. That doesn't mean that George does a bad job at all. It really means that getting access to George is typically the problem. Now, in George's particular case, I know he uh, is, is more in the direct specialty care. And so getting to George is not as big a deal as it would be to other doctors that may do the same thing as him. But our system is so confusing that people have long delays in being able to see a doctor. And when they finally get to see a doctor, and we talked about this last month, sometimes that doctor does not even listen to them. And that's very frustrating. And it may take months to get in front of a doctor, and then the doctor doesn't even listen to you. So very frustrating. And yeah, if everyone uh, would do so, I sure would appreciate any shares. So if you would share with folks that you're here to give other folks an opportunity to join with us, I sure would appreciate that. Uh, you simply go down to the window you're at and just hit the share button. All right. I kind of was thinking about where would I start down this pathway? Because this month we're going to follow the money. Uh, one more little housekeeping thing. Down at the in, in this box, if you've never been to an audio room before, there's a reaction button. You can give thumbs up. You can give a laughy face. Uh, you can also give the hearts. And then, of course, you can applaud if there's something that you would like to applaud for. There's also a place down there where you can raise your hand. I'm going to ask at different times uh, during this uh, particular gathering, if someone wants to get up on stage and give their opinion, to raise your hand so that I can bring you up on stage. That is actually the only way you can participate uh, and let your voice be heard is if you raise your hand and ask to come up on stage. And I will prompt you to do that here in just a little bit. And, and so as I was mentioning, where to start? Well, I'm going to start with a place that most 
of your lay folks would believe is the biggest expense for a health plan. And that is with drugs, with medications. Uh, it is not. It's only about 18% of our spend, but it feels like so much more. It feels like so much more because it's in the news all the time. And there is no doubt that in America, we pay more for medications than any other country. Uh, so much so that Iran report said we pay about an average of 256% more than that in 32 other wealthy countries. So that is a huge gap. To kind of give you an example, uh, we pay about 218% more than Canada for these for the same medications now, 170% more than Mexico, 779% more than Turkey, 209% more than Japan, and 258% more than what folks in France would pay. But here's the interesting part. This is primarily towards brand name medications. Uh, if you look at our generics, our generic medications here in the country just take up about 12% of our spend, just 12%. But our brand name medications are only 11% are 11 of the medications we take. So. Think about what I just said. 12% of our spend is made up from 89% of our medications. The other 11% brand name medications make up 82% of our drug spending. 82%, huge, huge amount of spending that we do on medications compared to other countries and compared to what, you know, what your Percentage-wise, we're spending so much more on your brand names. Now, one of the reports that I read that I thought was very, very interesting to me is why. Why do we spend this much on medications? Because we can. We're charged more because they can. Very interesting. Our prices can be higher. Now, this is not an endorsement of socialized medicine, but when you have a single entity, which in many of those countries we talked about, you have a single entity that someone is negotiating with, they do not, we can say no, right? If, if there is, uh, you know, a, a, a company coming out there and here's this medication, they say, hey, we'd love for your, the folks in your country to have it. Okay, well, this is what we're going to pay. Oh, no, no, we got to have more than that. Okay, thanks. Have a nice day. Um, wait, what do you mean? No, that's it. <laughs> this is what we're going to pay. Wow. Okay, so I guess this, this is all you're going to pay. Then if we want to offer our medication in your country, this is what you're going to pay. That's exactly right. That's exactly the way it happens in some of those other countries. They're, they're going to set the price. There's no negative. There's not like there's some penalty we're just not going to do business with you. I thought one of the other interesting things that I read through this report was that we have an entity here in the United States that actually does a really good job of being an effective steward of their formulary, their drug plan, and the way that they do pricing. It certainly was not who I expected it to be and maybe not who you would expect it to be either. But the Veterans Administration, they spend about one third of the national average on medications. 
it was very interesting to me that they are right in line purchasing. Uh, they're on, with well-managed healthcare systems like New Zealand. So pretty amazing that when our government has an opportunity in a very narrow way to focus on this, they actually do a good job. But why do we have so much trouble everywhere else? Because since we don't have a single entity, it's spread out all over the place. It's, it's like buckshot, right? It, just, it goes everywhere. And they're negotiating with whoever they want to, to set prices at wherever they can be. Um, I know, uh, Lynn, you're in this world, you're in that PBM world. And so you see some of these things that you know are kind of behind the curtain to some of the other ones. Uh, Wendell, I don't know how much you ever got into the PBM side or the uh, whenever you were in, in the VUCA world. But I do know that whenever you look at these things, it, it can surprise you where this comes from and who's doing a good job and who is not. So talking about medications and talking about following the money on that side and where we're looking at, I would invite whoever would like to talk about this particular subject. We are going to talk some more, but whoever would like to talk about this particular su subject to come on up. All right. Jamie was quick to raise that hand. All right. My new friend, Jamie, that I got to meet a couple of weeks at a speaking engagement. I appreciate you. I'm going to bring you up on stage, Jamie. And then uh, you'll just be able to unmute yourself and give us uh, give us your take on this. Welcome. Hey, everybody. So I mainly had a question when you're when you're talking about good. Um, the VA being good at um, their job administering medications. What do you mean? Because I know a lot of veterans and they're not really happy. Are you talking about just how they spend? Or yes. how they allocate? Yes. Okay. Actually, yes. It, I'm, I'm not saying they do a good job overall because okay. that obviously there's lots of veterans that would certainly dispute <laughs> that. But when we just talk about the way that they actually develop their formulary, they keep, remember, they're actually dispensing medications at low or no cost to veterans, right? So when they're doing that, they really have to, I mean, they've got to be fiduciary of their plan. And so they do a really good job of negotiating these discounts. And when when drugs, the other thing I thought was very interesting is when a drug cannot demonstrate value, they simply leave it off the formulary, regardless of what the cost is. They say, well, you know, we, we've looked at this. You show no value in this medication. Why would we add this? They're not just adding it because there's TV commercials <laughs> and people are asking for it uh, if it's not showing value. They're not going to they're not going to do it. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Uh, because, but yes, I agree with you, Jamie, 100 percent that overall, it seems like the VA doesn't do a great job, although there's some veterans that are happy and uh, with, with the services they get. Overall, I think we can we can say that the VA is a great demonstration of what it would look like if this country ran the hospitals and the health system. And we don't want any part of that. But it does show that there is a way that this can be done effectively in this country if someone sets their mind to it and says, hey, we're only going to take these things that make sense for our folks. So does anyone else have any comments they'd like to make on the medication side before we move on to the next place where our money is spent unnecessarily? All right, so we will move on. All right, we are about to uh, the $4 trillion, we're right in around the $4 trillion 
dollar spend in healthcare these days. So if you if you want to know how well, how does that break down? What are we really spending all that money on? You may be surprised to find out that about one trillion of that is spent just on administration. That's right, just on administration. Absolutely 100% non-clinical. So much so that when you look at 25% of that cost, remember four trillion, one trillion of it spent there, most hospitals have more billing specialists on staff than they do beds for patients. <laughs> that is absolutely crazy. The administrative bloat has just seen such a tremendous increase over the years. It, it, it's amazing to me when you look at how much it has, has risen. Uh, one of the graphs that I was looking at on administration shows that it's, it has risen over the last 40 years over 3,500%, over 3,500%. Uh, you know, you, you think about that time period and realize how much insurance has changed, how much more is needed to administrate these and how specialized that administrative job is. Uh, so much so that, man, that's a pretty sought after uh, job out there. Uh, there's about uh, 6 million administrative employees in the healthcare system now, a little over 6 million. Uh, to give you an idea of how that stacks up with doctors, there's about a million, just a little over a million licensed physicians in the country and over 6 million administrative positions. Um, when you look at other industries, uh, the legal, uh, education, uh, securities, commodities, uh, the administrative workers are less than one. So that's about 0.85 administrative for each one of those. But you can see just taking physicians into account that we're talking about a huge discrepancy when you look at the administrative side of healthcare. So the fact we spend so much in that is, is really not surprising whenever you take that all into account. Uh, go to a hospital anytime and think about how much on that first floor, right? There's, there's, if you go to a decent sized hospital, the whole first floor, there's, there's nothing but administration on that floor. There's no beds. There's no anything. You're not getting healthcare on any part of that floor. Everything there is on the administration side. So when you really think about how that works and you uh, think about doctor's offices, how many of the people that you see up front, how many people you, you talk to, that are in the building, if you call that that doctor's office, there are more administrative people in doctor's offices than there are clinicians in doctor's offices. So it's when you really take a good look at it and understand that that is such a specialized position now, it's not surprising to find out that a quarter of our healthcare spend is actually on administration. I was kind of surprised whenever I found that out here just uh, within the last couple of years. I guess I really delved into that to, to understand. And, you know, when you when you think about that number, that number is just on the healthcare side. What that doesn't even take into consideration is the burden that this administration brings in on employers. So imagine your employer that has to hire people just to work through all of these claims. Obviously, if you're a self 
completely self-funded employer, you certainly have to do all that. You have to have someone on staff that's doing that. But I thought it was very uh, disheartening, quite honestly, to follow the money into uh, really what you would consider, uh, not, not waste, because we're fixing to talk about waste, but into a place where things could be so much better streamlined. The technology is there. Uh, there's been a number of reports here recently that's, that you know have proven out that almost $300 billion could be saved just by technological advances that are here today, but they would just need to be implemented. Now, I thought the interesting report was, well, the first year you would actually have to spend that much to put them all into place. But after that, then that would be the savings. Therein lies the problem, right? Who's going to spend that money to put all those processes and systems in place to start saving money in the future? Always something that you have to, to worry about. All right, we're going to talk about one last part of this, and then I, I really uh, hope some folks get up on stage and give some opinions. But the last part, there is another 25% of our healthcare spend that is very difficult to find sometimes, but and, and it's even worse to talk about. And that is 25% goes towards waste. It goes towards waste and it goes towards fraud. And that is another big chunk. So think, let's get back to that number. We're spending $4 trillion, almost 20% of our gross national product. We're spending 20% on health care every single year. A quarter of that is for administration, so no services. And then another 25% is on waste and also on fraud. So we're going to talk about a little bit of both of those first. So what is the waste section of it? The waste section of it is failure of care delivery, failure of care coordination, overtreatment or low value care, pricing failure, fraud and abuse. And then of course, the just the complexity of administration. We talked about administration, but there's also the complexity of administration. Well, one of the numbers from the report that showed 70% uh, of folks were unhappy with healthcare also showed that the majority of the individuals that were surveyed then said that they spent eight hours a week on coordination of their own or a family member's health care. That's not even taken into account here, but imagine how much it, the administrative complexity. My parents are both uh, Medicare age now, and they have unfortunately had a number of medical concerns over the last few months. Just helping them navigate this system, helping them find care, helping them to go, unfortunately, from one specialist to another that's trying to, to, to find out what is my next step, only to get there to find out that wasn't your next step. Your next step is to go to a different doctor because I can't help you with what you were referred to me for. The frustration level that they have had is absolutely nuts. It's it's beyond anything that I would have thought my parents would go through having me be able to help them through this, but they're, you know, kind of stuck in their ways. They want to do a lot of this stuff themselves. I get it. They don't want to, uh, you know, burden me with it. I have to remind them, this is what I do. I help people every single day with this. If I can't help my parents, what, what am I doing? Right. Um, but it's, it's very frustrating to me to see them go, through what they have gone through over the last few months, uh, whether it was you know part of dad's cardiac issues, part of his uh, cancer treatments, the different things that he's had to deal with, uh, 
uh, the frustration levels that mom has had with, with heart issues and, and different things that she's dealt with, finding doctors, seeing doctors, uh, parts of them being, being, being pushed away. The frustrating frustration level is, is high there. But my point is how many visits did they have that were unnecessary? That's waste. They're going to see doctors are paying co-pays and the insurance company is covering this and Medicare is covering their part. That's waste. These are things that they should have never had to do. It's a failure of care coordination. These are things that happen every single day. And what I just talked about is very small part of it. Unless you saw the bills that I saw and then you realize it's not a small part of it. So waste is a big, big part of what's happening. The other part, of course, is fraud. And when you wonder, well, how much fraud is out there? Well, some of it is so obvious and just, just blatantly, it's hard to believe they even did these things. Things, if you've seen recently the lawsuit uh, with Aetna hiring Optum to do uh, some work for them. And then the, the dummy code lawsuit is, is what I call it. They just came up with a code for administrative services and the code said it was medical services. So it's two big insurance companies working together to defraud a health plan. Uh, you see what uh, recently, I mean, now here's two big guys going at each other. You've got Kraft and Heinz, uh, Kraft Heinz suing Aetna because they're not providing the medical claim data and what they have provided they're saying, hey, just, I mean, you you provided us very, very little data, but what you have provided us, we're, we're already seeing problems here. We're seeing that what you did was not right. You're paying claims you shouldn't have paid. It's, they have not even received all the data that they asked for, but, and it's, it's their right to it, right? I mean, what we've saw with the Consolidated Appropriations Act is that it's really shined a light on the parts of ERISA that employers needed to take into consideration. They really need to look at this because they're the fiduciary of their plan. So they need really need to look at that. And I think we're going to see more and more of these lawsuits. And there's a lot of experts out there that believe we will. And whenever we're looking at this, we already see more and more uh, unions filing lawsuits against uh, Elevance, which was, of course, Anthem, uh, another one filing a, a lawsuit against Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts. It's just it's just getting started. But this fraudulent use of the data, paying claims that were not even looked at. I mean, the, there's some there's some big things coming. But what can we do right now? What can we do right now to help employers in their search for better access to health care, for better ways of administrating their plans, for people who can be trustworthy to, to come through and help them uh, set up these plans. So I, I really want to ask for comments now. I'd love for folks to come up on stage and kind of give your impression of what we've talked about today and some ways you think people can help. All right, Charles, you were first on the bat, so I'm going to bring you up on stage. Don't forget, Charles, to uh, go ahead and unmute yourself and tell us what you got to say, buddy. Hey, Harlan. Thanks thanks for that. That is some wonderful information there. Um, 
I never realized, I never combined the administrative cost of both the insurance side as well as on the healthcare provider side. I never realized that it represented about 25% of the total cost. That, uh, wow. You know, because on the insurance side, which that's the side I'm in and you are too, you know, we understand the small group is 15% and uh, or the 20% for small group and 15 for large. But man, when you start adding the administrative on the health side also, that uh, that ends up being a pretty big bundle of dollars there. Absolutely. Yeah, it, it, it was really surprising to me as I started going uh, through all of the data and putting it all together. I'm like, wow, I mean, half of our four trillion dollars is 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 waste and fraud and administration. I, I, yeah. Still, I, let, let's say, I mean, we're not talking about two trillion is a little bit, but it's, it's still it's amazing how much of it is out there that we should have better control. Of. Yeah, you know, and considering the fact that we're a capitalist country, um, you know, I just I, you know, I, I'm of the opinion that insurance really needs to get out of primary care. We need to figure out a way to remove primary care from that sector. And I think if we remove primary care, that that might kind of start reducing uh, that administrative burden uh, because primary care is, as you know, represents, you know, 85, 90 percent of total care. And then we'll just handle, you know, the secondary care and the catastrophic care through a through an insurance product. No, you, you're you're exactly right. And, you know, I, I agree. I think direct primary care is certainly uh, helping that uh, direct contracting is certainly helping that. The, the biggest issue we have with that, Charles, of course, is education. Because right. it seems like that's an employer wants to have those services without realizing how much better off they would be without that hitting their claim bucket. And, you know, when you're fully insured, you don't even understand any of that. And so right. that first step, if, if you even in that first step, if you can get folks to go to level funded or start weaning them off, even if they're on a fully insured plan, if you can also offer a direct primary care membership or a membership with a, a group like we have in San Antonio, Houston, Austin called Next Level Urgent Care that also provides those services, then it changes everything for the plan because now you're pulling all of that. Like you said, so much is pulled out of that uh, claim bucket. It changes the game for them dramatically and I, they just don't realize what a difference it can make. Yeah. Harlan, thanks for the info. That was some good info. You're very, I appreciate that, Charles. Thank you for joining us today. All right, next up is my buddy Wendell Potter. Wendell, I know you got something to say about this, brother. So come on, uh, unmute yourself and tell us what you got going on. I think I have. Can you hear me? Yes, sir. We sure can. Well, good. Well, first of all, thanks for playing uh, Steve Ray Vaughn. I uh, was a big fan of his and uh, uh, happened upon, just stumbled upon a, a, a concert the other day from the 1970s or something. So I uh, appreciate that. I'm going to say that also speaking to what you were asking earlier, uh, we basically allowed uh, a sinister and greedy Rube Goldberg to uh, uh, to design our healthcare system and our political system. And I'll get to that in a minute. But I do also uh, uh, believe that Charles is on the right track. We do need to have uh, direct access to primary care. 
uh, primary care for all, if you will. Some advocates in Vermont and other states have tried to persuade lawmakers that this makes a lot of sense, but uh, that gets back to one of the problems that I just referenced, is money in politics. And we've allowed big incumbent uh, companies that have just grown like weeds over the past several years to the point that they dominate our healthcare system. Uh, uh, we largely, when you're looking at insurance, uh, allow Wall Street and Wall Street financial analysts and investors to run that part of our healthcare system and increasingly, these big corporations are just enormous. Uh, uh, CVS, and uh, which obviously owns Aetna and a big PBM, and United Health, which owns a big PBM, as well as a lot of other other uh, components, are the number four and number five largest companies in the country now. And Cigna, where I worked, is uh, uh, not too far behind. Uh, when I was in the industry, I left in 2008, uh, these companies worked with PBMs, uh, and but they were relatively small. Uh, in recent years, we've seen CVS by Caremark, uh, uh, Cigna by Express Scripts, uh, uh, United growing uh, Optum RX to enormous size to the point that these three so-called insurance companies now own uh, the three biggest PBMs that control 80 percent of the of, of the market share. Uh, so uh, we've we've kind of allowed this to happen uh, again. It goes back to politics, in my view, because these companies spend so much money protecting those profits in the political arena through campaign contributions. When I was at Cigna, one of my functions was to dole out campaign contributions to candidates at the federal and the uh, state level. So uh, when you've got that and as these companies get bigger, they have even more money to shell out. Uh, for campaign contributions and lobbying. And they also pretty much control the regulatory uh, process. We've got a, a situation called regulatory capture in the country. Um, one point you, you made uh, or asked is what can we do to uh, get employers more involved and educated? And that I think is gonna be key to our success. We've got to make sure that employers understand the role that they need to play, because most of us uh, who are not eligible for a public program get our coverage for employers, as we all know. But most of them, I would argue, probably don't even know that there are alternatives except for the big guys. Uh, so I think there's a lot that we need to do in, in that to educate um, employers, uh, uh, figure out how to get them more involved, even in politics, uh, and to make sure that they understand they don't have to work with Cigna or Aetna or whatever the, the company is that seems to be the only only uh, game in town. I'll stop with that, but I think uh, those are the basic problems. We've got, uh, we've allowed these companies to grow to enormous size and influence and really call the shots. Uh, and uh, uh, and that, that extends to the political arena as well too. No, yeah, and I, I agree with you 100%. And I think one of the most disheartening things that I see is that it's it's just not recognized by kind of any size of employer. But think about the fact that as big as Kraft Heinz is, Aetna did not hesitate to, to you know pull the wool over their eyes. They did not hesitate to do this type of business with them. What do you think they're doing to little guys, right? Exactly. Yeah, they and, they they do that because they've got the enormous staff to do that. Uh, yeah. Uh, and they uh, 
you know, the heart of that lawsuit is the uh, failure of Aetna to share data uh, right. with the client. And we're seeing, I, I, you're exactly right, we're going to see more and more lawsuits uh, like that. Also, uh, a lawsuit was just filed yesterday against Cigna for the use of uh, AI or some programs that Cigna uses to, uh, uh, you know, deny claims uh, right. uh, by the millions. Uh, right, by the millions. That's exactly right, by the millions. And then on the other side, one of the other lawsuits that, and I, and I wish I could remember right now, I meant to look this up beforehand, but I didn't, guys. And Aetna has now been sued because they had an AI approving. So just the opposite, Wendell. They were approving claims without even making sure that they were real, without even yeah. making sure they should have been paid. And so the health plan is saying, well, why did you approve these? Yeah, <laughs> yeah that, that's, that's exactly right. Uh, yeah, the incentives are off. And, uh, uh, and to your point earlier about uh, waste in the system, uh, and I think it largely is because of the growth of these big companies, but uh, uh, even you know, Aetna or Cigna has a multitude of different uh, permutations of health plans. Uh, so healthcare providers uh, have to have a big robust staff to do nothing more day in and day out, but to deal with them, try to make sure that they're paid and paid appropriately. Uh, and it just adds to the bloat in our healthcare system. So much money of that $4 trillion that you're talking about uh, uh, at least a quarter and maybe up to almost a third uh, is uh, sucked uh, away in uh, administrative costs. And increasingly, nurses and doctors are leaving clinical practice to work for these big companies in administrative jobs. So that contributes to the nurse shortage and uh, just the clinical problems that we have, too. Yeah, that, uh, that's, you're, you're right. It, we're at about 70 percent of physicians now uh, work for hospital systems or or corporations that we just don't have uh, that physician working for himself anymore. And if they're not working for themselves, typically they're not working for us either. So that's that's a tough deal. I mean, the largest largest employer of doctors in this country is United. It's United Healthcare. That's right. Division. Yeah. Yeah. Doctors. And, you know, you were talking about how big these companies have got. For those of you who haven't followed or, or really don't, get the you talked about number four and number five uh as far as size companies but if you don't realize where they were and i'm just going to use one of them in this in this case and that's united healthcare when the affordable care act was passed their stock price was at thirty dollars uh, yep. last time i looked which was about a month ago i'll be honest they was at five they were at 550 550 dollars 30 <laughs> 550 um that's pretty good growth that's pretty good growth right there. All right, hey, Wendell, and, I appreciate your insight on that, buddy. Uh, certainly, if you got something else to say, you, you can chime in. All right, next up was my lovely wife, Kelly. She raised her hand and wanted to come up here and has a couple of words to say. So what do you have to say today, my, my love? So I just wanted to come back to the point of how we've kind of found ourselves in this predicament. And um, it's what you started this with. It's because they can because we haven't said no and we haven't enforced our questions and been able to or even known what to question so i feel like that while there are two different sides on how to handle this do we handle it in the public um in the political sector do we handle it in the public handle it in the public sector what do we do um 
I personally am of the mindset that we need to empower employers, empower them with information and education, right? It doesn't, you know, we should be growing relationships um, for us that are brokers and people who come in contact with the employer groups, either through networking or whatever it is, we should always strive to educate and give them information to empower them to question, to make sure that they've done and are doing the best that they can for their employers and aren't finding themselves in a position to be taken advantage of and paying exorbitant amounts of money continually and continually feel like there's there's no recourse for what they're being given on renewals things like that um, but really just giving them the tools to understand that even in small cases like small footprints or small moves that they can do can be such a big movement for their employees in terms of quality access to affordable care without straining what they're already paying in. So that's one of the things that I liked most about what we discussed is the fact that um, reminding people that if you don't speak up and you don't um, ask the question, that you will continue to find that they will keep telling the the big industries, the big carriers will continue to keep doing what they're doing because one, we're giving them the tools to do it and we're not telling them not to. Yeah, you're you're right on the money right there. And that's, you know, it, as, a, as an insurance advisor, insurance broker, insurance agent, call yourself what you want to. If you're out there working with employers and you know, my, if you guys haven't got a chance to, to read it yet, um, my, my friend Matt Ord is on, is on this call and hopefully he'll, he'll come up on stage here for a second. Uh, we're going to be doing a podcast here later this week as well, but he, he wrote a book and it's been released now. It's called save your company. Don't feed the beast, the employer healthcare success formula. And he's got a section in there where he actually describes different brokers. And I could not have, have wrote it any better because he's just spot on. He's spot on about the, the actions that you see brokers taking. And if you've got one of the, there, there's four different kinds that he, he outlined there. And if you've got one of the three <laughs> that are not your friend, it's they're, they're in the pocket they, you know, they, they don't want to know the things we talked about now. They don't want to, lead you down the pathway of greater success. They don't want to question things. They don't want to rock the boat. Uh, you know, we, uh, last month, uh, our, our buddy Terry Schnook was on here and Terry, Terry was, Terry Schnook was talking about his experience working for one of the blues. Same thing. I mean, he, he, he'll get in depth and tell you, reach out to him. He loves to tell a story of the way that they determined who was getting what rate renewal. <laughs> it's, it's very, I, I won't steal his thunder. It's very entertaining to listen to that. All right. My buddy, Shankar Ponsolay. Shankar is a, uh, an American citizen. He was born and raised in Luxembourg, but got here as quick as he could. He loves the American healthcare system. Don't you Shane? 
<laughs> well, what a great, I love that introduction. He is American. <laughs> if the listeners only knew how long I have fought for that, my American dream, uh, it's really a pleasure to be amongst you Americans here. And I always say that the only aspect where I really think there's a lot to improve is healthcare. And luckily, we are doing that, and we are doing that together, uh, you and Kelly helping a lot in the uh, free market movement here in San Antonio. Uh, you know how I love AI tools, Harlan? And um, this morning, actually, for the past two weeks, every morning I get an email with an AI investor and it works so well and it keeps telling me go and buy Humana shares go and buy Humana shares <laughs> and I'm telling you the tool is always spot on and I am just not gonna do it you know uh, because you know there has to be something said about ethical investing and no, the reason I'm saying that is that I believe that we each can do our small contributions to make a change. And um, I think uh, really why I'm here on stage is to, to really commend you for the work you do, because that is, in my opinion, how we uh, impact our communities, start small and grow large with i am a small employer and you and your team take good care of us uh, helping us to navigate all of that and knowing how to implement it uh, you have uh, numerous audio events throughout the week where you educate us and i would just urge everyone in the audience if, the, if you are an employer or if you know an employer or you, you have an employer that needs to learn about this in uh, layman's terms, you need to uh, absolutely connect them with Harlan um, because that is how we can really start uh, bettering our, our communities and everybody's access to healthcare. So um, thank you, Harlan. Thank you so much. Well, thank you very much, Shankar. I, I certainly uh, appreciate that, buddy. And uh, yeah, Shankar is also one of the uh, founding members of the San Antonio chapter of the Free Market Medical Association. Uh, we are both members of the National Association as well. Um, our buddy, Matt Ort, who is on the call, is a chapter up in Wisconsin. I'm sure there are some more folks on here that are members that maybe I'm missing. I'm trying to go through here, but if you are a member of Free Market Medical Association, we certainly appreciate you uh, and all that you do. And if you want to learn more about that organization, please reach out to me or reach out to Shane Carr. It is an awesome, awesome group uh, all the way across the country. There are chapters, I believe, in 37 states now. And so certainly a lot going on there. Uh, and if you have questions about any of this, or as Shane Carr mentioned, if you if you'd like to have a conversation, a one-on-one -on -one conversation, or even just a, a chat back and forth here on LinkedIn, reach out to me. Uh, I love to talk about these things. I love to talk about solutions, but I love to collaborate with others to work on solutions as well. Uh, that is, uh, that's really how we put together a lot of the things that we do. And I know uh, Matt, that's really how Matt was working there in Wisconsin. He, he had a, 
uh, a challenge. He had a challenge. He was an HR a VP and he had a challenge. He had to face that because his company was wasting millions of dollars. And he, he was able to uh, really address that. And he's got a heck of a movement going up there, up there in Wisconsin. And so uh, congratulations on that, Matt. I really am, uh, am, am proud of what the, the work that you've done, buddy. And your book is, is outstanding. I, I'm, I'm, okay. I, fi I finally guilted him into coming up on stage. So pre appreciate you joining with us, Matt, and, uh, and coming up on stage to share some of your wisdom, buddy. Yeah, no, thanks for having me. And it's great to, to join a, a group of kindred spirits like this. I don't know everybody on the call, but certainly would like to. And just thanks for, yeah, thanks for inviting me. Glad to answer any questions. But I, I put, yeah, hundreds, hundreds of hours into that book. And, you know, there's lots of strategy information and lots of people kind of experienced 25 years of HR. And, but, you know, I think a lot of it, a lot of it boils down to, you know, they say values are something that you're willing to suffer for, or willing to sacrifice for. And sometimes it's right or it's more important to keep our values than it is to than it is to prosper or, or whatever. We have we always have to hold to our values. So, um, you know, just living out our values and being willing to take chances, being willing to what many see as taking chances. I see it as having fun and trying to help people. Um, is maybe the difference. A lot, I think a lot of people mean to do well, but then they, the fear comes in or the complacency comes in or just maybe busyness of life comes in. Uh, but it all boils down to action and what we're able to do. So, um, but yeah, I really, you know, this, this is a really cool call and I'm actually going to meet Wendell in person next week. So he's where we've got an event coming up in Milwaukee that is our highest profile event ever. And uh, we've got Chris Deacon coming as well. And um so excited about that, but we're, we're moving this movement in Wisconsin and starting to get some pretty decent traction. Yeah. I think one of the things that surprised me in reading your book is, you know, you, you're addressing a state that doesn't have as much movement towards the free market side and really had some high, we, we, we talk about the overall cost of healthcare being high, but Wisconsin, it was really high. And that's something you had to, to battle against and, and, and can have continued to. And your, your grassroots movement has really gained steam. So, gang, read, read his book. Go out and get Matt's book. You can get it on Amazon or you can reach out to Matt himself and do that. And I think the inspiration that, that I got from it most of all, Matt, is that you really started out small. I mean, you... You weren't in this industry at all. You were an HR guy that kind of figured out a few little things, saw some problems. But then when you decided to start sharing this with other employers, you started out very small, but it has really gained momentum. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, I, I've been, so I studied change management in school. It's always been a passion, right? Kind of this transformational leadership, kind of the Lou, Lou Holtz of the football world, if you will, right? He took losing teams and made winning teams and, inspired everybody so i thought that's always been my nature but i i always say as a transformational leader you you start out alone as as uh, uninspiring as that sounds but right you're alone and so you go get support you get your some higher level support but then you've got the the majority of people to to come along with you and so but if the values are right and people will follow values people will follow to do what's right especially if it means sustainability of communities and families and uh and, you know, I asked a friend about, you know, how do you lead? I was studying movements. I've always led companies to change, 
but you know, how do you do this? And he said, well, a lot of it's going around and spreading a lot of grass fires. You know, it's not one big bonfire in the center of the state, but it's going here. And it's, it's a lot of just hard work. And we were in Milwaukee yesterday at a, at a Concordia University event, and it's starting a grass fire here and a here and here. And the book was really intended to educate. You know, there's so much education needed before even employers can talk about this, have this, you know, you can have this conversation with them. So that's really a goal of mine is to speed up that education process. You can sit down for a few hours and learn how these things really work. But, but you're right. I, I did HR for almost 25 years, and it wasn't until the last third of my career that I really became keen on these topics and really became uh, educated on how things really work. Before then, I was a, I was an active HR person and very, you know, helped a lot of people and drove change. But I didn't I didn't know much about the the real healthcare world that I that I've learned over the last something like eight to ten years. Yeah, and you know, it, it's it is interesting too that you made these inroads and are continuing to make those in in a state as I mentioned that it has not been in the forefront of this free market movement. Um, you know, we're blessed here in Texas that we have quite a bit of direct primary care. We have quite a lot of forward thinking. Um, you know, Houston is a hotbed of that. San Antonio, Austin, uh, there is definitely some in, in the Dallas area too. Uh, Dr. K has a surgery center up there. Uh, Pen Health, if you guys, anyone's up in that area looking for a surgery center to partner with, Pen Health is up in that area out of Mesquite. And Dr. K's facility is, is an incredible facility. He is uh, definitely along the same lines his facility is of uh, Dr. Keith Smith uh, Surgery Center of Oklahoma. Uh, there is some great resources out there in, in our area. And you know, even even here with Texas Medical Management, Sean Kelly's group here in, in Texas with, it, with, it's with a number of facilities, you didn't have all those to begin with. You didn't have those resources. You kind of had to go out and, and knock on some doors and say, hey, <laughs> you want to you want to do some contracts? <laughs> <laughs> you, you are right about that. There is a lot of a lot of opposition here, and uh, the hospitals aren't. We've been able to. I, I still meet with some hospital executives, and there's good people within those things. But yeah, very, very opposed. You know, there's a there's a group really of the industry of, you know, the the large brokerage firms, and then the then the insurance in the middle, and the hospitals. They're all really fighting. They're fighting really hard to keep it the status quo. Right. And they do that in a lot of different ways and they do it politically. So I've had some, uh, I, try, I don't get as much into the regulation and the, and the, the politics side, but it's just as important, at least to me, to my, uh, my impression is the role of government is to really just create a level playing field to uh, allow the free market to do what it does best, right? Is maximize quality and minimize cost. So that's, so we've, I've had to dabble. I've, I've, I've testified in front of the Senate and dabbled in those areas a little bit. But yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's a lot of hard work and um, just day after day, just kind of pushing that rock uphill. So. And yeah, and I certainly appreciate the the work you've done there too, and it's it's very admirable. And I wanted to bring that up in this particular conference or this particular uh, event here because you guys need to understand that regardless of whether you're in an area like Texas or uh, Oklahoma or someplace that's it's a little more open to these concepts or you're in a, an island like Matt is where it's a very new concept and you've got you've to work harder at finding those partners. The potential is there. And regardless of which way you go, Matt's on the money of this. You've got to work hard. 
it, it's not an easy thing to go against the grain, but we are the only ones that are going to make the change. If you're listening on here, you wanted to know why does healthcare suck? Well, in a lot of cases, the care itself does not. It is not the clinician side. Does it happen? Absolutely, it does. The numbers show that there are misdiagnoses, there are things that happen. But the way our system is designed is not around the patient. And until we make the changes, until we design health plans, and until we as employers adopt health plans and put health plans in place that put our employees in the center, we're going to continue down the same pathway. We're not going to get better unless we make those changes to make things better. We have the opportunity. We have the tools. We have the leadership. We have folks out there like Wendell to tell the story of the way things were. We have folks like Matt who have done it. We have people out there that are have done lots of different uh, innovative things. David Contorno has done lots of innovative things. You've got primary care doctors out there that are changing the game. If you don't know who to talk to, reach out to one of us because we can help lead you down the direction. There is a lot of smart people that have made a lot of great strides. I'm not saying I'm one of the smart people, by the way. <laughs> I'm just passionate about what I'm doing. I'm passionate about changing things and passionate about making things better. I know we've got to make a change because healthcare should not suck. It should not. Access to healthcare should not be so difficult. I should not have to spend hours and hours helping my parents get to the right place. You should not have to spend hours and hours trying to get an appointment for your child or your parent or yourself. And then waiting months sometimes to actually see that doctor. The system, we've allowed this to happen. Now it's our time to take it back. Uh, it is almost uh, time. If anyone has any closing comments, I do uh, welcome you to make those. If you're on stage already, unmute yourself and make those. If you uh, are not up on stage, raise your hand. And I'll bring you up for any closing comments. So um, this is Kelly. I have a quick question for okay. anybody who's out on the poll, because we've done a lot of good job here talking and, and kind of breaking down where we are and how we got to um, the state we are with healthcare. But from the employer side, I would like to kind of poll um, our group. Where is the best place for employer to start beginning to understand the change that they can affect by um, stepping away from the big carriers? What does that look like for them? Because let's be honest, that's the last thing an employer wants to juggle is trying to refigure out healthcare. That's what we're here for. But what would be their first step or a pool of first steps that they could they could do to start on this road to change? I'll I'll, I'll answer for, for Matt. Um, buy his book. <laughs> read his book. Don't just buy it, but read it. I mean, that's exactly what it is. It's the employer healthcare success formula. He's actually written it all down for you. He's told you step by step, literally what to look for. 
Uh, I know I know that sounds funny, and it's certainly not self-serving for me <laughs> because I, I'm not getting any commission <clears throat> yet, Matt. Um, anyway, yeah, buddy. Uh, <laughs> but I think that is that is interesting. Okay, we got a couple more folks that want to uh, comment. So Doug, uh, Doug Johnson, come on up, Doug. Say what you've got, and then Charles wants to have a follow-up uh, comment as well. So go ahead, Doug. Yeah, just real quick to answer that question for Kelly. I'm, asked, I'm trying to ask the same question here. And um, in my beginning stages of this, number one, yeah, Matt's book. I read it. I bought 20 copies of it. I think it's a it's a good book and I think it's a good start. Um, but the other piece of this is uh, direct primary care as well. And I think direct primary care is a key component, not just to be a direct primary care uh, provider, but um, as Matt talks about in his book, being the white coat that uh, navigates care for them. So I think the direct primary carers have to step out of their realm and just providing care and also helping to navigate and direct that care. I know TPAs are supposed to be doing that, but I don't know that they're real good at that. So um, at that first level, DPC, that's where I would go. No, I, I agree with you. Uh, absolutely, Doug, because they're the ones that are sitting with the patient. They're the one that's spending all that extra time with the patient. And when they do, if they're making that referral and they're leading them down that pathway, then it's going to be centered around the patient. I mean, that's that's the bottom line. They're not going to let it be anything but centered around the patient. So I agree with you 100% on that, buddy. All right, Charles, uh, you had some closing comments, sir? Well, Kelly, I wanted to answer, you know, or, or put my two cents into your question. Um, I mean, I think that we need to put an offer on the table to the employers that um, that beats the big guys. I mean, I think we need to put some ideas out there, direct, you know, contracting with physicians, obviously, is one, but some other concepts that uh, they could see that they could easily implement and it not be a burden on their business. I mean, I love the idea that you said, hey, we haven't said no. Uh, you know, that would be a good lead in, uh, I think, to a small business owner. Hey, it's time for small business owners to stand up and say, hey, we're not going to accept these double digit premium increases every year. And, um, you know, and start introducing some concepts to them that they could see that they could implement. No, absolutely. That's a that is a great, uh, great comment there, Charles. And, you know, that kind of goes back to I was I was asked at an event here just a couple of weeks ago who my uh, perfect referral would be. And I said someone who is ticked off, someone who is upset and mad. They're tired of getting, like you said, these double digit increases. They don't understand what's going on. I thought we just had a great year. Why in the world did we just get a 20 percent increase, a 15 percent increase? Uh, our as one of my clients recently got a 41% increase, 41%. You know, Har who can yeah, you know, yeah, it, it irritates me when I look at the stock growth of Humana and United Healthcare that you just mentioned, and they still made double digit increases during a pandemic. Right. I mean, if you would, I, I mean, if any one year you would think an insurance company might lose money, would be a pandemic, and yet they don't. And so it's it's time for employers to say, hey, you know, we're 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 having a hard time making profit, 
and we're sending all of our dollars up, you know, to Connecticut and Minnesota and Illinois and all these, you know, big conglomerates. Now, I, I agree 100%. It is, it is time, uh, as, as the old uh, show network used to say, you got to say, I'm, I, I'm tired as hell. I'm not going to take it anymore, right? I, I'm, I'm tired of it. I'm, I'm just not going to allow these companies to continue to profit by not putting me and my clients and me and my employees first. So there's ways to do it. And, and if you want to know about those, please reach out. Please you know, reach out to me on LinkedIn. Please, uh, if you go out to my uh, profile, my email address is there. I think even my direct phone number is there. Reach out. I'd love to talk to you about what some of the uh, innovations are that are out there. Uh, hook you up with one of these folks. If you don't know some of these guys, maybe you're not uh, connected with them on LinkedIn. I'd love to help uh, facilitate that connection. Uh, it's going to take everyone. We're not competitors, guys. We've all got to do this together. There are, uh, in, in innovative ways of doing these, there's less than 500 advisors in the entire country that are putting these type plans in place. We are not competitors. If we don't work together, we're not going to see improvement and healthcare is going to continue to suck. No matter how great a job DPC physicians like Jeff Gold, who I see is on the call now, I appreciate you being here, Jeff. Folks like Jeff, they do what they can in their community and he gets out and he speaks about it, but they can't do it by themselves. And Jeff, I do appreciate you being on today, buddy. And I see my, my buddy, Brett Shoemaker. I hadn't seen you in a while, Brett. We need to catch up, my friend. Hey, appreciate everyone being on here today. Uh, Y'all have a super blessed week. Let's start collaborating. Let's start making change. Let's don't let healthcare suck anymore. You guys have a wonderful, wonderful week. And thanks again for being with us.